Once thought to be a futile attempt, the resuscitation strategy of traumatic cardiac arrest has changed dramatically over the last five years or so, culminating in the release of its own resuscitation algorithm in 2020. Most people listening are probably familiar with the theoretical differences of TCA resuscitation, but do you know why we do what we do? Have you mentally modelled what you'll do in this situation, and how you will apply the theory? And do you know how to deal with the aftermath of these rare and difficult situations? This month, we're resuscitating traumatic cardiac arrest and taking a better look at this hot topic. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. And my name's Alex. And this month we're looking at traumatic cardiac arrest. So this is something that probably is quite rare for ambulance crews, isn't it, Alex? It's not something people are going to come across particularly often uh, in their day-to-day activity. But when you do, it's something that you need to be really drilled for. Yeah, it's certainly something that will be seen from time to time and depending on specifically which role you're doing you may see it more often but yeah in general it's uh, it's one of the, the the less common occurrences yeah it's it's one of the areas I, I you know i wouldn't say i've got expertise in it but it's definitely something that i've been to a few times and uh, i've seen a reasonable breadth of out of hospital traumatic cardiac arrest so um hopefully can share a bit of uh, experience in in that format um right Let's get started then. Do you want to start us off with epidemiology? I certainly can, yeah. Rates of uh, survival from out-of-hospital traumatic cardiac arrests have been reasonably unclear uh, over the years of research. And at one time, uh, TCA was thought to be a condition almost incompatible with life. And a lot of texts and expert opinions saw it as a futile effort. Particularly, I've seen a lot of papers which consider traumatic cardiac arrest and its cost implication. You know, it it sounds a bit barbaric, really, but there is a cost implication to everything that we do. And it is quite a high cost compared to what was originally thought to be a very low chance of survival. However, the last 20 years or so, attitudes have changed several cohort analysis of traumatic cardiac arrest have demonstrated 30-day survival or survival to discharge rates of around 7.5%, which isn't too far from the national average of non-traumatic cardiac arrest survival to discharge, indicating that these are definitely not lost causes. And actually, military research from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts have demonstrated survival statistics in the region of 20%. Now, it's worth bearing in mind that this is obviously a very different setting, uh, different circumstances, and a different population, given that the military largely is young, physically fit people. But it does demonstrate that if we can get to patients in traumatic cardiac arrest early enough and treat them rapidly and aggressively with meaningful interventions, then there is a good likelihood of ROSC. Yeah, and I think actually, even in civilian data, Alex, that military research isn't too far from the potential picture that that you can draw. Um, Don't forget, 
trauma is the biggest killer of under 40s. And if you look at the population graphs of non-traumatic cardiac arrest and traumatic cardiac arrest in the UK uh, matched to age, as, as you might imagine, non-traumatic cardiac arrest or medical cardiac arrest involves far more of the older age population. So it looks like an inverted triangle, whereas traumatic cardiac arrest has a far greater distribution across the age ranges. And depending on which type or which etiology of traumatic cardiac arrest that you look at, as you say, if you can get to these people and treat them aggressively enough, uh, we really are quite far away from that futile effort that it was thought to be many years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just make the 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 point uh, around the military population simply because when we look at evidence, it's obviously really important to think about that evidence in context uh, before applying it to a broader population. And in general, traumatic cardiac arrest and trauma is more likely to affect younger populations, but there is the potential in the civilian setting to be seeing traumatic cardiac arrest affecting people who are significantly older than most military settings will be will be dealing with so it's just important to um to to consider all, all of those aspects when when we're looking at a piece of of evidence and um these type of statistics but you're absolutely right the point is that what this does demonstrate is that it is not a lost cause and that um you know with meaningful in, uh, aggressive inter interventions we we can have good outcomes so most people who are listening are probably already aware that traumatic cardiac arrest is a completely different entity from medical cardiac arrest, and we've already alluded to that. But even if you don't know completely why it's different, you've probably heard that this is a circumstance where we might not be doing CPR and where we might actually need to prioritise other interventions. So why is that the case, Josh? Yeah, so to answer that question, I think it's probably worth considering why we do what we do in medical cardiac arrest. So invariably, the majority of cardiac arrests in the UK that we're likely to encounter will be medical or non-traumatic in origin, as they have an incidence of 53 cases per 100,000 of the population, and that's versus just 1.8 cases per 100,000 for traumatic cardiac arrest. So non-traumatic cardiac arrests are normally cases of pump failure. So regardless of the etiology, be that thromboembolism, hypoxia, cardiomyopathy, the predominant issue is with the myocardium and the heart not pumping. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this, but in the main, because medical cardiac arrest is generally a slower pathological process, we end up with pump failure. Yeah, and that's where basic life support comes in, isn't it? The foundation of, of our resuscitation practice is focused on mitigating that pump failure whilst we also work to address the causes and reverse it. Chest compressions are, I think, around 30% as efficient as a, a natural myocardial contraction. So by performing chest compressions, we can circulate some of the blood and create an element of flow in the system, isn't it? That's that's kind of what we're achieving uh, in our medical cardiac arrest management. Yeah, and in addition to that, we know about 20% of those are going to be shockable rhythms that require a certain level of coronary perfusion pressure in order to convert them back to a perfusing rhythm. So therefore, chest compressions maximise the flow that we're able to achieve through the coronary arteries in a hope of fixing our pump problem. So in this way, we can think of chest compressions a bit like a holding pattern in our resuscitation, maintaining a level of flow whilst we work on diagnosing and fixing the problem. But in some traumatic causes, they're potentially not as useful and may in fact delay us in delivering meaningful reversible interventions. 
So most people have probably heard of the HOT algorithm or HOT principles. These are a set of principles that were developed in London where they see a lot of trauma and have since been adopted by national guidance. So Alex, do you want to talk us through what HOT stands for? Yes, definitely. HOT stands for hypovolemia, oxygenation, tension pneumothorax, and tamponade. It's worth bearing in mind that the Recess Council at UK call call oxygenation hypoxia, so for them it's HHTT, but I personally think HOT principle is is more widely known and actually is easier to remember. So hypovolemia... And if we op- don't call it HOT, then the pun at the start of the podcast won't work. So. Yeah, <laughs> and that is the most crucial that is thing. Basic, that's what I think we should design most national guidance around. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. Uh, so yeah, just one more time then, hypovolemia oxygenation, tension pneumothorax, and tamponade, which are the four reversible elements of a traumatic cardiac arrest. So the focus of this episode is going to be going through those elements and considering the pathology that's occurring in each of them. Yeah, so let's start with hypovolemia then. So the basic premise here that I'm not going to labour because most people are going to be quite happy with it is this is someone who's been hemorrhaging either internally or externally and have exsanguinated. So they've lost somewhere between 30 and 40% of their blood volume and they're now at the point where they're unable to generate a central pulse. Past a certain point of hemorrhage, ventricular filling is going to be so poor that our cardiac output isn't enough to generate a central pulse and perfuse our organs. However, there is still an element of flow. And this is where the notion of low flow state in trauma or lost comes in. These patients look like they're in cardiac arrest, but in the early stages, if you put an ultrasound probe on them, then you can see that the heart is still beating, it is still working, there's just not enough blood in the tank to generate pressure. So if we add chest compressions on top of this, then it isn't actually helping. And there's relatively clear-cut evidence on this. So there's a couple of studies that have looked at animal models, uh, and essentially what they've done is they've anaesthetized an array of pigs and have put them into hypovolemic cardiac arrest, uh, essentially by severing the femoral artery. They they bleed them until they've lost about 20% of their circulatory volume. They give it a period of time, and then they bleed them down to the point that they lose central pulses uh, and then have split them into various treatment groups. And, and essentially, when when they've looked at those groups, whether they've been given saline or whole blood, uh, no matter which group they were in, if they were given chest compressions, it worsened their, their survival outcomes and the mean arterial pressure that they were able to generate during that resuscitation. So it seems that chest compressions, you know, logically, they're not helping, but there's a reasonable amount of evidence to suggest that they are also harming the resuscitation. Add into the fact that we're going to have to do so much in order to resuscitate these people properly, we can start to understand now why guidance and why guidelines are de-emphasizing chest compressions uh, and suggesting that they should only be done when we've taken all steps to start reversing the, the meaningful things, the reversible outcomes. Great. So that's hypovolemia. Uh, let's move on and talk about tension pneumothorax. So in attention pneumothorax, there is air building up between the visceral and the parietal pleura, uh, which can, it it obviously in this context is caused by trauma that can be penetrating, but obviously they can be caused by other mechanisms as well. That build up of uh, air in the extra pleural space, um, 
and that increase in extra pleural pressure can compress if it, if it gets significant enough it can it can compress the low flow venous return system obviously if that system is compressed enough there will be uh, reduced or absent cardiac filling which then means that obviously we cannot create circulation and if taking place in an underfilled system if this is a multi-system trauma where we've got a perhaps a penetrating trauma to the chest where we're bleeding and developing a tension pneumothorax it's even more concerning because it is so much easier to compress that outflow system as well so there's no cardiac ejection as well as no cardiac filling does that does that pretty much sum it up, Josh? You're the uh, you're the expert here. Yeah, it does, and and I think I, d- I don't think we can stress this enough: is that you really don't need huge amounts of pressure and huge amounts of air in the wrong spot in order to affect the hemodynamics of these patients, particularly if they are underfilled as well. So, very rarely are these things going to present to us in isolation. Um, there's going to be an element of interplay between most of them, particularly in blunt trauma patients who. Certainly, from my experience, are the the most common traumatic arrests that uh, that, that I tend to see. So, um, I, I guess the, the the takeaway point about that, when we're thinking about tension in these patients and this obstructive uh, kind of shock picture, is that we won't necessarily need huge amounts of air in the chest, and so we're not necessarily going to get those clinical manifestations, those clinical findings that we're all taught to look for our flaps 12 and stuff like that uh, to, to suggest to us that it's there. So uh, a lot of it requires a bit of history uh, and a high index of suspicion. So shall I move on to oxygenation then? And so this is the sort of maybe traumatic cardiac arrest bit. Yeah, this is this is a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? Because trauma has caused the 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 problem but it's kind of a medical pathology underlying it isn't it yeah so the things that we think about here are impact brain apnea and asphyxiation now i'm not going to talk too much about impact brain apnea here because i think we're going to do that topic next month um so you know if you don't know about it just hang fire yeah make make sure you hit follow and like and subscribe and come back next month we've we've actually got to do it now alex so impact brain apnea in short is uh, it's a group of patients that receive a blow to the head they get knocked unconscious and it's associated with a period of apnea and clearly if you're not breathing then you're going to become hypoxic and asphyxiation speaks for itself pressure on the chest preventing us from ventilating uh, or strangling or, or constriction otherwise constriction of the airway will result in hypoxia and we talked about that a reasonable amount in our hanging podcast so you can go there to to understand a bit about the the hypoxic uh, pathophysiology related to uh, to, to to that but but either way if this is a purely traumatic oxygenation problem then these are instances where a hypoxic arrest probably will benefit from traditional cpr focused resuscitation so so we may want to consider doing some cpr on those patients but as i've already said it's not clear cut and there's often interplay between all of these elements particularly in blunt polytrauma yeah it's one of those things that almost doesn't seem like it should be in the acronym but actually it's really important both um because of it being a mechanism in itself but also 
because it's one of those things, although it, it may be related to the trauma and, as we've sort of discussed, maybe more of a medical pathology underlying it, it is important that we don't forget about that when we are looking at uh, dealing with a traumatic cardiac arrest. So, so it is really important, although, although it sort of sounds like we're saying it's kind of not trauma. Um, you know, as, as you said, often this is involved with a polytrauma patient who has got lots of different things going on at the same time. So actually oxygenation is, is really important as well. Yeah. And I'm so not to give too much of the game away for next month, but often, you know, there's, there's loads of instances of people that have had a traumatic insult that appear to be in cardiac arrest that are not breathing. And then some really simple airway maneuvers and perhaps a little bit of artificial respiration or, or even just opening their airway. These people will start breathing for themselves again. And that's a life-saving intervention. So from mass casualty incidences, I think there was uh, one reported case from the London Bridge attacks, somebody who had some blunt trauma and a head injury. And, uh, and and a passing member of the public who I think was a uh, who I think was a medic opened this person's airway and they started breathing for themselves and that was the only intervention that was required to save their life. So, yeah, it it has a bit of a medical crossover, but definitely something that we need to bear in mind and consider in the resuscitation of these traumatic arrests. Uh, you've given it all away now, Josh. We're going to have to cover ingrown toenails instead. <laughs> No, because Simon's not here next month, so that's the Simon special, isn't it? <laughs> okay, so let's. So we, we've talked about hypovolemia, tension pneumothorax, oxygenation. So the last, do you know what? Actually, we've done these out of order, haven't we? Because we we've done H T O T rather than H O T T. But anyway, the hot hot algorithm, <laughs> the hot hot. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about the last T then, uh, which is tamponade. Cardiac tamponade occurs when there is an injury to the coronary arteries or a puncture in the ventricle, so usually associated with penetrating thoracic trauma. Uh, and that injury causes bleeding into the fibrous pericardial sac. Now, because that sac is fibrous, uh, it's not hugely elastic. So obviously, if there is a significant or even a small amount of bleeding into that sac, which is already filled with fluid surrounding the heart, it doesn't take a huge amount of, of pressure increase to actually start affecting the the heart's ability to, to fill. So a cardiac tamponade, whilst reasonably rare, can be absolutely devastating because it really doesn't take long um you know, as we know, it, it, it doesn't take long to have an effect and, and the heart, whilst it is a very uh, ingenious muscle and an ingenious bit of anatomy, it, it doesn't take a lot to really upset it. And once that happens, um, things aren't looking great. Yeah, and th these can be really insidious presentations, these ones. So th the classic, as you said, is penetrating trauma. Um, so you get these cases of young guys, normally guys that have been stabbed. And if you get there early enough, they're compensating really well. So they look a bit sweaty, they look a bit tachycardic, but but you could be fooled into thinking that they're not too atrocious. And then as that heart begins to tamponade itself, they get shocked incredibly, incredibly quickly. Um, and unless you've got somebody there who can do something to reverse that, they, they remain in traumatic cardiac arrest. So yeah, it can be a really insidious one. Now that we have gone through uh, what the hot principles are, um, obviously we need to talk about the management. So 
where where are we going to start with uh, talking about management of uh, traumatic cardiac arrest? So we'll get the elephant out of the room, which is chest compressions, shall we? So hopefully we've demonstrated there's a series of pathologies here at play that aren't going to be benefited from chest compressions and particularly hypovolemic traumatic cardiac arrests or when there's a hypovolemic component, they aren't going to be benefited from receiving chest compressions. So probably as part of our management, we're going to be arriving and potentially having to stop people from performing CPR so that we can get on with the with performing the reversible causes. Because not only does it not necessarily make sense and it's potentially harmful thinking about some of that animal analog research that we've got, but somebody doing chest compressions is getting in the way of our access to the chest and potentially getting in the way of our access to, to getting quick access points. So uh, so we may be having to have a frank discussion with them to stop that. And this can be really difficult to do. And I remember my first traumatic cardiac arrest. I knew all of this, so I'd not long been to a traumatic cardiac arrest study day and was acutely aware of the research and the changing thought pattern. And then I went to my first traumatic cardiac arrest and I did CPR because there were people there that were already doing CPR and you just go into this ALS algorithm, don't you? We, we work so hard to drill it into us. It can be really difficult to get that out of your, your system. Yeah, and <clears throat> yeah, 100 <laughs> Now I want to do the rest of the podcast as Gollum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, sorry. Yeah, it can be a really difficult situation, can't it? Because we, you know, exactly as you said, we, we're sort of almost programmed to go into the management of medical cardiac arrest. And firstly, I would say that if you, if perhaps you, you don't have a huge amount of experience in dealing with traumatic cardiac arrest, and the first thing that you do is you do go into that automatic CPR, medical cardiac arrest management, um, don't come away feeling too you know, don't come away feel, feeling bad about that because that is a sort of almost pre-programmed response, and you know you're not you're you're unlikely to have caused significant harm in doing that. So that's the first thing that I would say. But you're absolutely right; it it can be a really difficult situation to manage because there's all sorts of people there, police, fire. Uh, or, or off-duty medical personnel who perhaps don't have as much experience or, or understanding of traumatic cardiac arrest and those those instances where you have to say we're going to stop CPR those can be really difficult and I think the way to manage that uh, is very situational um, if you have enough people and you've got someone who is upset by the idea of not doing CPR, uh, and you have enough people to to take that person aside and, and briefly explain the reason. Uh, as long as you're not detracting from patient care, then then maybe that's the way to do it. If not, then you know, escalate that situation to the police or to um, to, to, to someone senior within your service. And it, it, you know, ultimately, if you are the first person there, and there is someone who is being really difficult and insisting on doing CPR, so you know. For for example, perhaps an off-duty medical professional, um, you're probably better off, as long as it's not detracting from what you are doing, uh, probably just leave them be until you have enough people to manage that situation. Would you agree with that, Josh? 
it's often useful, like you say, to verbalize it to the whole team. So just say something. So, so, so not using the word cardiac arrest can be quite helpful and using the term low flow state. So particularly if they're in a PEA, which early on lots of these patients will be, it's, it's a little bit more difficult um, if they're in asystole and people can see that because they recognize that as a, as a cardiac arrest rhythm. But, but if you, you say this patient's in a low flow state, we're not going to do CPR in favor of doing the things that are, that are going to make the difference to this patient so we can try and reverse what's going on. And then I think as people can see uh, the work that you're putting in to reverse this and, and manage them, um, uh, that they'll get that kind of buy-in. Uh, and certainly later on, we can look at bringing some CPR back in. Uh, as, as I think, you, you know, we do talk about de-emphasizing chest compressions, not completely excluding them. And people can often forget that uh, t- that we, it might be useful, it might be helpful to bring CPR back into uh, back into play. So, uh, so yeah, that that's definitely some things that I would uh, consider doing um, to navigate that human factors issue. Just verbalise it to the team, and I think the last thing on on chest compressions before we move on to um, talking about the the things that we're going to do to reverse these these elements is is to not forget about medical on trauma components or medical cardiac arrests that. Uh, seem like traumatic cardiac arrests so the classic one isn't it is someone who's had a clutcher at the steering wheel behind their car and it's just gone into a lamppost and actually the intrusion into the car and the damage to the car suggests that it's quite a a low speed component and and you know definitely doesn't look like they have serious enough injuries to put them into traumatic cardiac arrest and that's probably because there's a medical component and that's backed up you know if they're in a shockable rhythm which is quite not impossible but abnormal for a traumatic cardiac arrest they're generally particularly if they're in that lost low flow state that i talked about uh, are going to be in a pea or, or an asystole so don't forget that you can have medical on trauma elements uh, or just purely medical cardiac arrests and if there's any doubt revert to type carry on doing cpr because as we said at the top chest compressions are really important and influential when we've got pump failure like in medical cardiac arrest so hot principles now before we start talking about the actual what we're going to do i i think one thing i want to sort of bring into this discussion is that it's very easy certainly when i first became aware of the hot principles uh which was you know quite a quite a while ago now but it's very easy to think well actually i can't do a a finger thoracostomy for example so actually really how how much of this is applicable to me as a on the road paramedic do i just do what i normally do until the critical care team arrives is this a critical care thing and i would say that this is not a critical care thing and some of the things we're going to talk about or all of the things that we're going to talk about really are things that we can do to implement the hot principles. Yes, we may not be able to do a finger sweep and a finger thoracostomy uh, and some of those other things, but we can definitely have a direct impact on the outcome of this patient because these are interventions which need to be done. Once this traumatic cardiac arrest is identified, the best chance this patient has is that these principles are applied as soon as possible. You can have all the amazing blood, ultrasound, and and surgical skills uh, that you like in the world, but but if the really core elements aren't done well, uh, and the, the what needs to be done isn't recognised by someone who's there early, um, then it's then it's all for naught, isn't it? So yeah, 
most of these points are easily achievable by an ambulance crew just because you maybe don't have some of the surgical skills doesn't mean that uh, it, it isn't something that you can uh, achieve and and uh, resuscitate really really well so let's start with hypovolemia then and and just before we go down the route that we're going to talk about it in uh I think it's worth saying we talk about the hot principles and we're going to talk about it as H-O-T-T, but this isn't a linear track that you should take necessarily with, with treating this patient. So it's all situational dependent. So you you may not start with reversing H. In, in fact, clearly you're going to normally start with with, with the airway, with, with oxygenation. However, if they're having a catastrophic hemorrhage, you might need to start with with H. If there's a really obvious chest injury, uh, then you might need somebody to start adjusting, start addressing their chest uh, a little bit sooner. So, so it's not a linear. We must follow it in this hot process. Um, that's just a nice way to talk about it and remember everything. So you treat you you do the the, the most important and the most meaningful things for the situation that you're in first. So, uh, Alex, do you want to start talking about? how we're going to start correcting hypovolemia. I absolutely can. Uh, yes. So one of the first things, and I think this is one of those things which perhaps we get a little bit nervous about because we, in in certainly in my experience, are a little bit a little bit nervous about moving limbs which are fractured slash dislocated because obviously often that is something which we don't do. Uh, so if you turn up to, um, let's say, uh, an RTC and you've got someone on the floor having flown 30 feet off a motorcycle who's who's all bent up like a pretzel, well, actually, one of the things that we can do is to put the limbs into as close as possible to their normal anatomical alignment and the normal position of those gross bony structures. And that is something that we can do to limit the amount of bleeding because lessening and narrowing those abnormal spaces in which blood can collect will increase the chance of the sort of natural tamponade effect to help arrest that hemorrhage. Another thing that we can do as well as ensuring as close as possible uh, to normal anatomical alignment is, is the use of direct and indirect pressure dressings, particularly pressure dressings and blast bandages, that type of thing, and the use of hemostatic agents. Also, we're going to have a low threshold for binding the pelvis. So, to be honest, I think if if we've got a patient in in traumatic cardiac arrest with who's blunt trauma, then we should just be binding these people's pelvises. It's it's a good intervention to help minimise uh, blood loss into that area, and is definitely something that we need to tick off our list. So, uh, get somebody to bind the pelvis uh, as early as you can um, if you've got the, uh, the the staff to do so. Um, I would generally always do it in a traumatic cardiac arrest unless it's something really, really obvious like a penetrating trauma and it's very clear where those injuries are. As for other things like splinting, you, you know, I've had some people ask when we're doing this in university, should we be putting a KTD on these patients? Don't bother. It's too slow, it's too fiddly and, and there's limited utility uh, in those arresting the hemorrhage in, in this case. So just pull the limbs to length like you've uh, like you've described, Alex. Get people into a normal anatomical alignment, bind the pelvis, stop any external bleeding that we can see with our normal uh, methods for, for, for stopping that. 
and then we need to move on to thinking about filling them. Yeah, just for uh, anyone who's not familiar with the acronym there, KTD is uh, Kendrick Traction Device. In terms of filling, uh, obviously, ideally, we want large bore access. How do we feel about intraosseous access in the context of traumatic cardiac arrest? What we want is quick access. So we don't want to be spending ages looking for intravenous access. If there's something we can get confidently uh, and we can get reasonably large bore in, then by all means, go for it. But we want quick access so we can start filling this patient because that's what they need. They need volume and they need volume as quick as we can provide it. So yeah, IV access, IO access is, is fine, but we need to be thinking about locations as well and we need to think about the injury patterns so ideally we want this access to be above the diaphragm because if this patient has disrupted pelvic anatomy or, or uh, you know intra-abdominal bleeding potential impacts to, to the major vessels that are there then what we don't want to be doing is uh, potentially losing that into a into a third space or something so Ideally, we want large access above the diaphragm. So a humeral head IO would be ideal, a, a large ACF access or a large external jugular, something like that. I also have to say humeral head IO, if that's the route that you're going down, is actually quite handy in, in situations where you have a limit, either limited space or uh, a limited number of people. Because if you are, as a paramedic at the head end of the patient and you're looking after airway, you're also actually not too far away from the humeral head. So it, it can be worth uh, consideration in that context. I, I sometimes use them in that context in medical cardiac arrest as well. Yeah, they're, they're awesome. I re I always choose a humeral head IO uh, now, uh, unless I'm doing a conscious IO. I think tibia is slightly nicer in that instance, but uh, yeah, I'll always choose a humeral head IO. I think they can be, seem quite daunting to people, and I think that's the training school effect, isn't it? Everybody practices on a proximal tibia IO doll or IO mannequin, um, and we're not particularly drilled at doing humeral head, but it clinically is better. It's got better flow rates. As I said, it's above the diaphragm, so there's less uh, potential issues with disrupted pelvic anatomy, uh, and we can get larger flow rates. So uh, if you're not totally confident with humeral head IOs, really do go away and have a think about that, revise it, and, and um, get comfortable with your landmarks, because once you've done it a couple of times, I, you know, I don't think it's that hard. What What do you feel like? What What once you've once you've done it and got it in in your muscle memory, it, it's actually just as easy as as tibial head. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I. I I more often do humeral than tibial, so I'm probably more nervous about a tibial IO than I, than I would be about a humeral head. There are, there are a few things about humeral head. You know, I'm sure you've probably got some tips for us about how how to get you know, how to get the ideal position for a humeral head. But yeah, once you've done it, it's it's not really any, any different tibial placement. On that point, it's really important to remember whenever we're using an IO, we should be using three-way tap and, uh, and a syringe in order to put it through. We shouldn't be gravity feeding these, particularly in younger people who've got better bone density, um, then we're not going to be able to generate the pressure just squeezing a bag or gravity feeding it uh, to get a decent infusion rate. So particularly in this group of patients, we want a dedicated person at the access point pushing it in with a with it with a three-way tap particularly if we're using a, an io uh, and just a couple of other little points on that so humeral head ios lots of people find them really easy to dislodge so um if you 
bear in mind where we're going with this topic we're going to need access to the chest a little bit later on so the arms are going to be adducted out and the risk there is that either the the arm or the shoulder externally rotates and the the brachialis tendon will dislodge the io or if we abduct the arm too much then we can um end up dislodging the io on the acromium so we need to just bear in mind where we're putting the arms and I'll put something on our website about how to internally rotate the arm so that when we crucifix it out, we avoid the acromium and we avoid the brachialis tending becoming an issue. So uh, make sure you check the website for a few little pointers on that. Now that we've got access, uh, obviously we need to talk about what we're going to use that access for. So what does the research kind of say on this? Because obviously, you know, largely um the normal kind of 999 response we are carrying fluid uh and blood products be that plasma packed red cells or whole blood are are now present in the pre-hospital uh setting in in ver- you know carried by various uh, individuals and teams so where 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 are we kind of thinking in terms of what the the research is saying on this yeah so i think most people would be reasonably inclined to agree that if you're losing blood one of the best things that we can replace that with is blood so i don't think there's too much controversy there in that blood products well ideally whole blood or blood products a combination of uh, exactly what that looks like there might be some debate are, are probably the best things to to fill these patients back up with particularly if it looks as though they're salvageable uh, and there's there's signs that they're in a low flow state so like i say there's it looks like there's electrical activity or there's signs on an ultrasound um that the myocardium is is working hard but we're just not getting a perfusing rhythm but 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 the results of the the refill trial um you could argue maybe don't make that as clear-cut uh, a point. So traumatic cardiac arrests were excluded from the refill trial, and so we can't directly apply it here. But uh, I think if we're saying these patients, certainly in the early stages, in the salvageable station stages, are just in a lower flow state rather than a true cardiac arrest type state, then, then I think we can probably agree that, that blood would be useful. Now that said... I think we're also moving away from this idea that sodium chloride is this absolute awful demon water. Certainly, shortly after we qualified, Alex, didn't we, that p- people were basically saying it's salty pasta water and it's absolutely useless and, and it'll dilute your clotting factors and, and it's just absolute awful. Yeah, and uh, demon water is now trademarked uh, to General Broadcast and uh, will be available <laughs> at your local pharmaceutical uh, provider. <laughs> it sounds like an energy it drink, does, doesn't it? General Broadcast demon, demon water yeah. coming 2024. But but yeah, it, it was really quite, it, it was demonised, wasn't it? But I, I think we're moving away from that a reasonable amount. And like I alluded to earlier, some of those intra-arrest animal models used sodium chloride uh, and blood was only marginally better at developing um, at developing a ROSC rate. Uh, it definitely increased the the circulatory volume and gave them a fusing rhythm. And like I said, with with refill, there was no particular difference in the pre-hospital phase whether you got blood or whether you got um, sodium chloride. So I definitely don't think it's uh, this awful stuff. I think if that's what you've got, then 
that's what we should use. These people need circulatory volume. And, you know, clearly when we're getting to litres and litres of the stuff, that's that's becoming problematic and perhaps not that helpful. Um, but certainly some boluses to, to increase uh, circulatory volume people it again in this context shouldn't be getting worried about it however if you can get an enhanced care team or a critical care team there who does carry blood products then they can just modulate your resuscitation by by putting a few of those into the mix as well particularly if you get a rosc perfect right i think we've probably uh talked enough about hypovolemia uh we risk uh putting people putting people to sleep so shall we move on to oxygenation then and from from my point of view this is probably one of the more simple maybe that's not the right way to look at it but one of the one of the more simple aspects of this in the sense of we gain airway and oxygenation in any case yeah there's there's not mountains to talk about here is there i i guess uh the only things that i normally talk about when i'm teaching this is in resource poor environments how do you do this uh whether or not you, you know if you're in a really uh difficult situation where it is just you whether or not you put some basic airway adjuncts in and a high flow mask and then start continuing with some of the other resuscitation until you can commit fully to to the airway or and a bvm uh, or can you use members of the public around you put put an eye gel in uh, and get them to utilize the bvm whilst you coach them uh, and give and 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 start uh doing and start addressing some of those other reversible causes. I guess you could could argue that that's a, a somewhat idiot proof approach. What do you yeah, think? so we've had some disagreement on this, haven't we? Because I have been in this situation, not in the context of traumatic cardiac arrest, but in in uh, a medical cardiac arrest. I was uh, on my own at night, and I uh, I started doing what I can, and someone turned up at the scene who told me that they were a medical doctor and would I like any help and I thought fantastic I am going to ask this person to uh to to use the BVM because I have got an established airway and then that means that I'm free to carry on with other things and whilst I have no reason to doubt that this person was a medical doctor what I didn't take into account is that this may not be a situation which they find themselves in often in the context of out of hospital cardiac arrest and i think uh this doctor was so distracted by what i was doing and the circumstance that they forgot to ventilate the patient and actually i utilized more of my bandwidth and more of my time in coaching than actually i probably would have been better off just um doing what i could by myself you know, it's, com- it's completely situational and sometimes you can get people on scene who are absolutely amazing and fantastic. And I have to say that most of the time this is the case, but I think we have to be very careful or at least have a note of caution in in leaving something as important as ventilation because it is not, as we know, it is not as simple as grabbing hold of the bag and giving it a quick squeeze because there's all sorts of problems with pressure, particularly if we're looking at the context of a patient who is perhaps developing in pneumothorax and, and all those sorts of things. So my my feeling is that unless it's very certain situations, I prefer to get the public doing other things rather than airway. And it's definitely not ideal, and and I think in medical cardiac arrest it is a slightly different kettle of fish. Um, but I I guess 
sometimes we just have to think dynamically and pragmatically, don't we? And if this is a patient that we know is hypovolemic and we know that myocardium is is getting increasingly flatter um, from not having any kind of perfusing fluid or volume in the tank, then we want to be trying to do as much as possible. And and if that meant tolerating someone being coached uh, on the BVM for, for a short period of time, then that, that also might seem uh, the lesser of two evils, depending on how long it's going to take for our backup to come up. Yeah, definitely. And there's there's a big difference between asking someone to uh, babysit the BVM for a short period of time, as you said, and and asking them to potentially take over ventilation. You know, very different contexts. So I'm not I'm not dead against it. I I, I just think we need to have a note of caution there. That's that's my only uh, caveat to that bit of advice. Let's move on to attention uh, pneumothorax then. So I think it's important to point out in this instance that treatment for tension pneumothorax should be undertaken based on the history and likelihood. Rather than looking for really hard signs, like I said earlier, it can be really difficult to assess for signs of tension physiology in these patients because all of the really useful signs like respiratory effort, chest expansion and circulatory impact aren't really possible with this patient in cardiac arrest. Lots of the signs that we would look for in a ventilated patient, like increased ventilatory pressures or or really increased pressure on the bag, are unlikely to be very obvious if the patient's not intubated, if we're using a supraglottic airway. So we need to have a really low threshold for action here. Also, remember, in a patient with a very low perfusion state, like I've said, you don't need that much air in the intrapleural space to impact the hemodynamics. So we're not likely or or we're not necessarily going to get the massive pneumothorax signs uh, like the hyperinflated chest or tracheal deviation, which we know are really late signs and signs of a big tension pneumothorax. So if the history and mechanism suggests it, I would be addressing this and I'd be addressing it bilaterally. It's not always the case, but my general rule of thumb is if I'm decompressing one side of these patients' chests, then I need to really ask myself why I wouldn't do the other side. Alex, where are we going to put this needle? How are we going to address that? For most paramedics performing a needle thoracocentesis, it's either going to be the second intercostal space uh, at the midclavicular line, uh, bearing in mind the entire length of the clavicle, which is a really important point, or in the fourth or fifth intercostal space uh, in the mid-axillary line. Yeah. And I think most people will be aware of a number of studies out there looking at chest wall thickness, many of which conclude that the anterior site is the inferior. Oh, that's getting confusing, isn't it? If, if I'm saying inferior, that the anterior site is less good. <laughs> less because, effective. Yeah, less effective rather than, yeah, because of larger chest wall thickness. So whilst this is true, you also need to consider what equipment you're using. So hopefully most ambulance services have moved away now from using the 14 gauge, four and a half centimeter long cannula uh, for this purpose. And they should hopefully be using purpose built bits of kit. So the T-Pack or the Pneumodart are a couple of uh, devices that are on the market. They're about eight or nine centimeter needles that are designed to go through chest walls and the the cannula has a bit of increased rigidity to it to stop it blocking and bending so we shouldn't have the same issues that are reported in these studies with chest wall thickness and i think it's sometimes worth bearing in mind that 
obese patients may have increased adipose tissue laterally as opposed to anteriorly when they're in the supine position. So we should be comfortable using either site uh, and we need to consider we, we need to consider the most effective site for the for the patient's size and chest makeup in front of us. Uh, so the other thing that we need to think about when we're looking at needle decompression is the issue of blockage. Uh, and it may be that uh, if a site gets blocked, that it has to be removed and uh, re, 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 re-decompressed. Is that the word? Um, re yeah, <laughs> recompressed. Re- re- <laughs> if it blocks, it recompresses, and then you need to re-decompress. Re- re-decompress, yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's something to to not forget about. You know, it's not a case of the um, the, the 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 needles in, and therefore the problem is is solved. Tick box, next problem. Uh, it's something that we need to keep coming back to and checking, making sure that we're not retensioning and um, you know doing anything that we need to to make sure that that uh, is is not causing a problem. So, Josh, coming coming into this from uh, from your position, do you want to talk to us a little bit about finger thoracostomy? Yeah, sure. So, I imagine most people are, are familiar with this. So, those that are trained and able to uh, finger thoracostomy in the lateral position that we've just described, so the fourth or fifth intercostal space, making a, a small incision in in through the skin and adipose tissue at the top then using some forceps to strip away the intercostal muscle between the ribs inserting your finger into the space to create a hole Uh, and if there's air there you should get air and blood release and the nice thing about this is not only do you get uh, a larger uh, lumen for the air and blood to escape through so you definitely uh, are going to release that if you pierce the pleural cavity you also get good tactile feedback, one, to make sure you're in the right place, and two, to tell you whether or not the lung was up or down. Um, so we would come along and, and perform um, bilateral thoracostomies, which is the first step in performing the next phase, which would be addressing cardiac tamponade. Yeah, so I have seen, I think, two clamshell thoracotomies in my career so far and it's not something that although although i have witnessed and to to a small degree taken part in uh in them it's not something that i know that i know a huge amount about but my understanding josh is that there is different time targets depending on whether whether the mechanism is penetrating or blunt trauma is that correct yeah, definitely. So you'll you'll hear the two times ten minutes and fifteen minute targets, and this is from the initial loss of output. And these are guideline times within which it's expected that you can expect to have a degree of success. And then outside of those timelines, um, the the procedure is more likely to become futile. So uh, we talk about ten minutes since the loss of output if it's in blunt trauma, and fifteen minutes since the loss of output in penetrating trauma. Now, clearly. It's going to be situationally dependent and uh, individual crews may choose um, to work outside of those time limits, but but they're typically the timeframes that you would uh, you would talk about for, for likely success, I would guess. Uh, and as we've already described, we really start to think about and talk about cardiac tamponade in penetrating chest trauma. So that's where you're more likely to see these procedures being uh, administered. And I imagine, Alex, that's probably the two that you've seen is, is um, thoracic stab wounds. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Both uh, 
yeah, both as a result of uh, of, of uh, stabbings, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, and I think blunt thoracotomies are starting to fall out of favour. So there's a bit of work being done by uh, air ambulances and I believe Photon, which is the pre-hospital um, doctors research network. There's a bit of work being done called the Tetris study um, where air ambulances and critical care services around the UK are submitting their uh, their thoracotomy data to, to this research piece. And I think they're probably going to look at survivability and outcomes and timelines. And so we may start to see that uh, time frame change and we may see people or the recommendations for performing it in blunt trauma uh, adjusted or reduced um, based on that so I, I think that's going to be out in the next 12 18 months something like that brilliant so that's most of what we're going to talk about in terms of the actions that we can take to kind of fulfill these hot principles one thing that we haven't looked at when we're talking about cardiac arrest in this context is medicines so josh adrenaline what about adrenaline? Should we be giving adrenaline in traumatic cardiac arrest? So it would be really easy to just answer no to that question. And right, that's that. That's that. Done. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like doing things the easy way. Uh, so I think I think typically in a lot of the training that I've received around the topic, it would be easy to walk away from that with the notion that you don't give adrenaline in traumatic cardiac arrest ever and i think the answer is probably no but it depends so let's start with hypovolemic cardiac arrest so we know in patients with massive bleeding who aren't in cardiac arrest they tend to have worse mortality outcomes if we give them vasopressors so in a patient that has exsanguinated they've lost over 40 percent of their blood volume somewhere it's unlikely that increasing peripheral vascular resistance is going to help because our issue isn't, as we've said this whole way, the, our issue isn't with uh, poor heart contractility and saggy vessels, it's with volume in the tank. And there's some evidence to suggest that it will worsen outcomes. So there's a 2019 study by uh, Yamamoto et al. that found that seven-day survival was only 1.1% in TCAs that received adrenaline, which was five times worse than the group that didn't. So in hypovolemic trauma or cases where this is a significant factor, I'm probably not giving it. However, there might be some instances, so say in asphyxiation, uh, as we've discussed, where it might have a role. So I think in the main, we're not giving it a standard you know, there's exceptions to everything, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And it's it's one of those things that there is no there's no real clear kind of uh, definitive guidance either way. And and on that note, another medicine that I think we should probably talk about is TXA, tranexamic acid. That's another one which obviously we will use in the context of trauma and certainly uh, traumatic cardiac arrest. My my understanding is that there's nothing really specific about traumatic cardiac arrest in guidelines uh, regarding the use of TXA and, and most of the time it will just be given as part of the resuscitation because obviously if we're looking at a TCA um, we're assuming in most cases there is going to be an amount of bleeding would that does that pretty much sum up with your your experience yeah yeah, pretty much. So uh, I don't have a strong feeling either way. I think most of the stuff says to give it, but exactly where you give it and when you give it, um, I think is down to clinical gestalt. So in my mind, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to highly, highly prioritize an antifibrinolytic because we have to get the patient back alive in order to, in order for 
the breakdown of clots to even be a consideration that we're worried about. So I definitely don't think it's way, way up there as we do in perhaps other trauma patients who who aren't in, in cardiac arrest. Um, but yeah, most of the guidance says we should, we should get it in as part of our resuscitation somewhere. So somewhere during the filling process is probably reasonable to put it in. Yeah, we probably don't want to be leaving it until we're right outside the uh, the doors of the receiving hospital. If we can, if we can avoid that. Uh, but that being said, it, yeah. it's better <laughs> it's better to probably give it than not give it, even if you are right outside the doors. Yeah. So somewhere between the first thing we do on scene and the patients to take away medicines, TXA should somewhere be in there yes. somewhere. But yes, uh, that, we'll leave yeah, that that's, to that's you, some so. really uh, some really top notch uh, guidance. <laughs> that, uh, you you are welcome for that. Fine. Okay. So we are nearly done then, aren't we? Um, especially especially talking about takeaway medicines and um, <laughs> and uh, yeah yeah. Do you want to talk about discharge, discharge advice, yeah, Alex? <laughs> no one thing i think we could talk about though is uh the kind of the aftermath of these incidents because regardless of the outcome unfortunately obviously traumatic cardiac arrest there is a chance that it is not going to be a positive outcome but as as we've kind of made the whole point all the way through you know that's not to say that it's not worthwhile and actually we may find that we're taking this patient to hospital but in the circumstance that this is an unsuccessful cardiac arrest one thing that i have learned from my experience is particularly if this is a stabbing or a vehicle accident which has resulted in a death that is going to be a crime scene so one thing to bear in mind before recognition of life extinct is the early tactical removal of non-essential equipment because depending on the police officers that are there it may be that once role is declared that is a crime scene and nothing can be removed and for very good reason they don't care if our equipment is in there or not so that is one piece of advice that i would give if it looks as though it is not going to be a successful outcome and it is going to be a crime scene that is probably the point where you start thinking about well actually let's try and get as much as we can out now one thing that you can't remove is the i don't know what you call it litter litter i suppose um the you know the the bits and bobs that are left over the wrappers and, and and all the detritus of the resuscitation however removal of bags monitors equipment is uh, in my opinion a a quite important step mm you you can normally can't you and i guess you probably do this in your role quite a bit when it's getting to the point where you're starting to have those conversations and it's looking like it's going down that route there's normally time for somebody to have a chat with who whoever will be the police officer in charge and navigate that formal handover of the scene and formal transition of the scene which which can normally be we're going to start trying to thin out people we'll take all of our electrics and then you know, once we've confirmed it's your scene. So so there's normally the ability to do that. And I've definitely ended up, you, you know, n- learning this the hard way by having cars the other side of a crime scene and having, you know, Lucas devices and all sorts of stuff that we've had to hang around for hours while CID decide whether or not they've got enough pictures of it. 
So um, yeah, I, I think as soon as as soon as it becomes the police's scene, it's very difficult to withdraw all of this stuff, like you say, Alex, for very understandable reasons. So if you've got the bandwidth, or, or ideally if you've got a scene commander there who who can take over this kind of extraction of of team and equipment from what is going to be a crime scene, um, that can be really useful and. And you mentioned, you know, if it's if it's an assault or something like that, but also bear in mind, if this is something that's happened at a workplace that doesn't necessarily scream foul play to you, the fact that it's happened in a workplace means that it might be investigated like a crime scene for health and safety executive and, and potential corporate manslaughter type stuff. So just because it's not a stabbing doesn't mean that... Uh, your scene isn't going to become a crime scene. Yes, that is actually a really, really good point. Uh, death in the workplace will absolutely be reportable and and be investigated. So, so yes, um, that is a very good point. It is important to try not to disturb what may be a crime scene as far as possible. So if we can avoid treading in obvious puddles of blood, which we don't need to be near, then then ideal you know if we can avoid moving things at the scene bits of vehicle or or whatever the situation may be then then that is all all to the good as well last point on that is don't forget to announce it to your team because it's it's very easy to get carried away um with the next steps and withdrawing and and all that kind of stuff so if something is going to become a crime scene make sure the team are aware of it because i've definitely again i'll hold my hands up been guilty of of trying to show students around damage patterns and all sorts and then police officers have come up and said can you stop kicking glass around my crime scene and that kind of stuff so yeah put it at the forefront of everyone's mind and, and just shout that out there and then speaking about staff Obviously, staff welfare is something that we need to be really aware of here because the ambient, modern ambulance service, there's a huge changeover of people now and, and it's highly likely that this is potentially going to be your first traumatic cardiac arrest and, and almost certainly there's going to be someone within the team that hasn't been to something like this before. And even if they have, these things can be really horrible scenes that are highly emotionally charged. So, what sort of things do you end up considering about staff welfare, Alex? I think we're we're all aware of debriefs and trim signing and that kind of stuff, but but typically, what what do you do in the sort of immediate ten minutes following one of these scenes? What some things to bear in mind? So, I think one of the points that you made about informing the team, I, I would say, actually, that applies to any cardiac arrest or or any situation where you're thinking of um sort of terminating resuscitation efforts whether it's trauma or otherwise but i think it is uh important to discuss with the team as a whole not just the registered clinicians but to say something along the lines of my feeling is that there is nothing further we can do here does is everybody in agreement does anybody have any other suggestions because one of the key things for staff welfare one of the questions that gets asked a lot is could we have made any difference if we had done x y or z could we have made any difference and i think if people are given that opportunity to to have that say and discuss those things prior to that decision being es- essentially taken out of their hands i think that's really important in terms of other welfare I wouldn't say there's anything specific other than the things you've mentioned. You know, debrief is is really important. We we know all about debriefs and sometimes they are viewed as almost a formality. But after these type of incidents, they are um 
you know, they are really important, both in terms of organizational learning, but also in terms of making sure that the people involved are are looked after. And also don't forget people it's very easy for us to become isolated in our little professional bubbles and you know we'll sometimes have large debriefs with multi-agency but sometimes not and the two instances that i've seen which we spoke about earlier of um, clamshell thoracotomy it might be that if you are in a large urban center that the police officers fire officers you know everybody else involved has seen these things before but actually more more likely than not this will be the first time that this that they have been exposed to an event like this so i think it's really important to keep an eye out for for other people on scene as well and just any of those little indicators that that they might be struggling a little bit um and, and not forgetting you know other, other people who perhaps aren't professionals um bystanders uh etc but these things tend to come back generally not in the immediate aftermath but after a few days and really i mean we've 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 talked about this before but really if you are struggling please do speak to someone because you know we can't help you if we don't know what's going on and just keep an eye out for your colleagues as well if someone's uh, quiet or changed and you know that they've had a job like this or they've had a bad a bad job then speak to them or or ask someone to speak to them you make a good point there on the topic of uh, thoracotomies, and I think it's very easy when you're in roles where you're exposed to this stuff a little bit more often. So, you know, you in the ops officer position and, and myself in my position, you you can forget that that's not a normal thought process that after, you know, a few minutes doing bits and pieces, fairly normal bits and pieces for a cardiac arrest, that we're then going to convert this to open heart surgery. So if you're part of a team and the and the HEMS team or enhanced care team are quite heads in doing this and they're going down that route, it can be very useful if you've got the bandwidth to do it, to just announce to the team what a thoracotomy means, say things like they're going to be doing open heart surgery to prep people for it. Because I think we're quite good with bystanders and laypersons, but as soon as there's someone in the team that is wearing a uniform and quite often it's ARV officers, isn't it? And we assume that, you know, these big burly police officers who've, who are carrying guns uh, might be a little bit sort of stalwart to this kind of thing. But clearly there's no reason why they would be mentally prepared for this. No, uh, And I'm sure it can yeah. be more psychologically damaging if you don't know what's about. To yeah, happen. you're absolutely right. You, you know, they're, they're, probably quite experienced in in the things that happen in a cardiac arrest but then you know again this this is my direct experience you know they're 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 watching us do cpr and and putting putting needles in people and and all that sort of thing and then all of a sudden uh people turn up whip out some scissors and and cut the chest in half and and start cranking ribs about and all sorts of things and you can you can see them visibly blanch and and you know that's that's quite a shocking uh moment and and i've seen that both both in members of the fire service and in the police not just uh not just arv officers you know so yeah it's it's important to to remember as you say we're generally quite good at getting members of the public out of the way but don't forget about other services and just you know it might not be that they need welfare and that's probably not our role because they'll have their own mechanisms for that but the questions they will have will be things like why 
did that just happen? Yeah. You know, and that's that's a question that their welfare mechanism may not be able to answer because actually the people providing their welfare may not have an answer for that question. So yeah, it's just you know I, I think that's a really important um, a really important part of that procedure in and of itself. Uh, but yeah, my my main thing in staff welfare is just just to look after each other, look after yourself, and um, and make sure that you are taking care of each other. Okay, so let's summarise. Traumatic cardiac arrest is a rare presentation to ambulance crews, but one that we can make huge differences to if we're drilled and resuscitate viable patients aggressively. We've discussed how chest compressions are de-emphasised, particularly in hypovolemic traumatic cardiac arrests. And we should focus on doing the meaningful interventions quickly for these patients before considering whether to restart compressions. Don't forget that there can be medical components or medical arrests that present with a history of minor trauma, so don't miss these. And if there's any doubt, conduct a conventional resuscitation whilst you gain history and fact find. We need to stop or reduce bleeding by arresting external hemorrhage, returning limbs to normal anatomical alignment, and more than likely binding the patient's pelvis. Filling patients is key, particularly when there's a PEA rhythm that may indicate a low flow state. Access to blood products in these early viable patients is probably best, but we absolutely can fill them with fluid if that's all you have. Getting volume in the tank is what we need. We've discussed how we're going to address oxygenation requirements with good airway management and how we'll have a low threshold for bilateral chest decompression. Remember, we may not get the hard signs that we typically look for in diagnosing attention pneumothorax. Even a relatively small amount of air will cause cardiovascular collapse in an underfilled patient. Getting access to a critical care team in these patients is really important as they may require a thoracotomy to address cardiac tamponade. This is particularly important in those penetrating chest trauma patients. And finally, we've discussed the aftermath. Remember, these are likely to be crime scenes after the resuscitation is over, so try to preserve scene integrity where possible. And make sure that you look after yourselves and your colleagues following the debrief, as these are rare and emotionally charged jobs. And as always, you can find our back catalogue and the links that we've used to compile this episode on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. If you're not currently subscribed or following us on this podcast that you're listening to us on currently, well, just hit that button. It really does help us to keep making free open access CPD for you. And if you really want to help us out, you can leave us a review or a comment on either Spotify or iTunes. Pavel, Dan and Steve, you've left comments recently. Thanks so much. That feedback's really, really useful to us. And as I say, it really does help us to share our CPD with more people and keep making episodes for you guys. So thanks very much. That's really helpful. But that's all for this one. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again next month.